Welcome to Actualize, a podcast focused on the intersection of performance, ambition, and mental health. I'm your host, Rob Pantwala. My goal for the show is to not only celebrate success, but also shed light on the challenges and sacrifices that come with ambition. Actualize is brought to you by First Session. Launched in 2019, I started First Session to help you find the right therapist. First Session is purposely designed more like a dating website than a clinical website, as we're completely focused on helping you find the right fit the first time. My team and I interview and vet our partner therapists, so you can simply browse videos, see who you vibe with, and instantly book a session. Check us out at firstsession.com and see why more than 7,000 Canadians have chosen First Session to find a therapist. This episode is with Annie McIntosh. Annie is a content creator, marketer, and Master's of Counseling student living in Vancouver, BC. In the episode, we start off by discussing Annie's role as a content creator and influencer and her love for nature before diving deeper into her experience living with depression, how she takes care of her mental health, and more about her desire to help others as she completes her master's program. I hope you enjoy this episode with Annie McIntosh. Thank you so much for joining me on this October afternoon here in BC. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Wanted to get started by just asking you a little bit more how you describe what you do and all the things that you do in terms of you know how you keep busy. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of been a bit of a all over the place journey for sure. But right now I'm freelancing. Yeah, as a social media manager, photographer, content creator, and I'm also in school full time uh, doing my master's degree in counseling psychology. So that's kind of the headlines of what I'm doing right now. Amazing. Sounds like a lot to juggle at once. Yeah, it has been. It's been fun, though. I feel like I'm the kind of person who needs to be pretty busy. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. Absolutely. And I initially reached out because yeah, I saw that you were uh, completing your master's in counseling program, which as far as my experience is kind of the, one of the main programs to become a counselor or therapist, at least in Canada. Is that your intention or do you not know yet? Like, how's that going for you? Yeah, so the program that I'm in and most other like master's counseling programs, that is what you need to register with like the provincial body because it's provincially regulated in Canada. So yeah, the goal is to become an RCC, which is a registered clinical counselor when I graduate. And I think I would like to do private practice. I definitely want to be a therapist and like work in that capacity. I think yeah, just some experience and playing around into more specifically what type of therapy and work I want to do. I'm excited for that part. But yeah, definitely working as a therapist is the goal. That's exciting. That's super exciting. I find myself now knowing like over a thousand therapists since I started this company. So <laughs> I can say that every therapist I've met is like deep down a really well-intentioned, like good person. And uh, it's been a really good journey on my side. So what led you, I, like you're doing marketing for your core role right now and you're freelancing and you're a content creator online on social media. Uh, what, mm -hmm. When did you start thinking about going back to school to do counseling? Yeah, I mean, I think it was kind of a culmination of a bunch of different factors. I've always been really interested in psychology and mental health. I have a BSc in psychology from UVic. Mm -hmm. And right after I graduated, I was definitely 
kind of on the track of applying to grad school to do my PhD in psychology. I wrote the GRE and everything, and I was pretty set on that and then ended up working in a research capacity for a psychology clinic and just really didn't love that experience very much. I think what I resonated with the most was connecting with people and that aspect of it instead of the research. So that was a bit of a redirection. And then, yeah, I've, I kind of always had to balance these two interests of art and creativity and photography with the academic side. And I just kind of got pulled into this world of traveling and photo and social media. And I really loved it. And I love the connections that you form with people. And I think it just it just kind of like reached a time and I'm 27, almost 27 now where I just kind of felt like I'm ready for a change. I want something that, you know, I can really dive in and have my be my career for a long time and that I feel very fulfilled by. And I think, yeah, that was kind of what inspired the going back to school part while also kind of juggling this other side of my identity. Very cool. I definitely want to dive into the counseling area. Uh, maybe before we yeah. do that, and this is something that I've been talking to quite a few past guests about who have a presence on social media, um, like a, a significant presence. And yeah, knowing what you know now, like in your schooling, and also just you said you've always had an interest in psychology. Like, how have you approached? Kind of building your personal brand online with the knowledge of you know psychology and like how have you approached that from a mental health perspective in terms of making sure that your mental health is okay yeah i mean that's a great question i think for my personal page and like my own kind of personal content that i create a big value of mine has been authenticity i think that there is a lot of upward comparison and just kind of really tough imagery out there that portrays not very realistic lifestyles or people or even yeah just like faces and bodies so it's always been super important to me to kind of not be a part of that problem as much as I can be and then in doing so I think that makes me feel better about myself but yeah it's a tough world out there for sure I think like so many people are using social media right now and we know that it can be hugely impactful on your well-being um, and you take in a lot of content all the time so I think just as a user kind of mitigating your own risk by managing your time on social media and who you follow and then as a creator just being very mindful of the kind of content that you're putting out into the world and just making sure that it's with a do no harm kind of perspective. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Is there anything that most folks like wouldn't see that you know, I'm thinking like comments and like DMs or, you know, just like really <laughs> like have you had to build up some sort of resilience or boundaries or like, you know, what are the hardest parts of having kind of such a large kind of, I guess, open following, like a public following rather? Yeah, I mean... I've been very fortunate in that I, I have not experienced cyberbullying personally, which is lucky because I think it does happen to a lot of folks who show up online the way that I do. But definitely like as a woman on social media, I don't believe that this is exclusive to somebody who has a large following, honestly. But like 
I've gotten a number of pretty horrible DMs privately from men that are just like like super inappropriate. But I, I would say that that's honestly probably like the worst kind of one-on-one direct interaction that I've had online has just been discomfort. And it's pretty manageable because you can just delete a DM. Yeah, sadly, that sounds like par for the course. It's really sad that's the case. Yeah. Like, oh, my goodness. I know. And it's just kind of one of those things that just happens. And it, I think it's almost impossible to avoid, unfortunately. Right. Right um, now. And I also wanted to yeah, ask you about your love for nature. And like I know a lot of your content is around just being outside and camping and exploring and that sort of thing, which is incredible, especially I'm, a, I'm also, I'm living on Vancouver Island now as of about yeah. over a year ago and from Ontario. So that's a, it's an amazing accessible benefit to those of us living out here or even just in Canada. It's usually pretty accessible, but yeah. How has your relationship with nature evolved over time? And like, what do you get out of spending time in nature? Yeah. That's a great question. I So I grew up on the West Coast. I grew up on a really small island called Bowen Island, which is just off of West Vancouver. And I I'm, I just feel very fortunate to have been in a community and in an area where I was very much surrounded by natural outdoors for a lot of my childhood. And it just became like a very integral part of who I am and part of my self-identity and that I had a family growing up that spent a lot of time in the outdoors and taught me a lot of skills that allowed me to kind of push myself in the outdoors and build that community of people who want to be in nature. When I moved out from home and when I moved to Vancouver Island, for example, for school or back in Vancouver, those skills and that passion and aspect of my self-identity just like really stayed with me. And I think that, yeah, it's just, it's feels like being outside and the need to be outside and spend time in nature is kind of part of who I am at this point. And I just find it very therapeutic and healing. And yeah, it's just a great source of community and joy for me. Just a quick interruption to chat about my company, First Session. Have you had a less than ideal experience looking for a therapist? There are lots of options out there, but it's hard to know where to get started and who to trust. My company, First Session, focuses entirely on creating the best experience finding a therapist. We vet and verify each therapist we work with, interview them on camera, and allow you to browse on your own time to see who you vibe with. You can see updated availability and book directly with them. No phone calls, no email back and forth. Run through videos and find the right therapist for you the first time at firstsession.com. Love that. I'm a huge, I love Bowen Island. I got to spend a lot of time there um, when I was. Well, I'm glad you visited. It's very small. Oh, oh, it's got the best vibe and it's so close to the bigger city. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 It's inspiring to see just like, just this beautiful images and videos of just like, I don't know, just the whole West Coast. Like, I can't wait to explore more up north on the island and on the Sunshine Mm -hmm. Coast and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I'm super lucky to live here. Yeah. And so, just like, the language you're using and things like your identity and, you know, parts of your identity and things like that. Like I'm kind of a therapy obsessed person myself and done quite a bit of therapy myself. And I like almost minored in psychology, but I just, you just couldn't quite get the guy that I wanted. Uh, I've, I've really got nothing to show for it on paper, but you know, like 
where did this kind of like language come from? Like, have you done a lot of self-exploration over the years? Like, have you done a lot of therapy over the years, counseling? Like how, yeah, what can you share about that? Yeah, you know what? It's interesting because I don't have a very storied history of like regular therapy. I've definitely been to therapy and have found it very valuable. I think that language a, just having the tools in my back pocket to be able to apply it to myself has come from studying psychology, probably. I think that has definitely helped. I think just also naturally, I'm just like a pretty introspective person. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of journaling. I find that it's like very helpful for me to kind of understand my own emotions and self through writing. And I think that like a lot of that language kind of comes out when I put it on paper. So that's, I think that is kind of where it comes from. But definitely the more I learn in school, the more that you kind of develop this eagerness to apply it to yourself. I think all humans are like that. We want to, you know, make it about us a little bit, but it's helpful, right? Like it's helpful to have the tools and the language to just to know more about yourself and how you want to show up in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And you've been quite open about your experience with depression, living with depression is I think how you phrase it. And yeah, as someone myself who's experienced uh, several years of depression where I felt really stuck and also kind of shifted, I guess, I'm kind of assuming here, but also kind of shifted my mindset to to kind of trying to relinquish the control of you know, over my state of mind. Right. And I think that was kind of freeing for me. This is about 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. I'm curious, like, I have so many questions about your experience with depression that we'll see where this goes, but even just like your language of saying, you know, living with depression, like how did you arrive at that kind of verbiage? And I know a lot of folks might say I have depression or I am depressed yeah. or whatever. Like, how do you, why do you choose those words? Like living with depression? Yeah, I mean, I do think that the language has shifted in the past few years surrounding just for a lot of these disorders. I mean, particularly, for example, for folks with living with personality disorders, you might say this is a person living with BPD, like borderline personality disorder, instead of this person is borderline or this person has borderline. And I think that it just kind of allows you to separate this mental disorder, this monkey on your back from being intrinsically a part of you. And it, instead, it's something that just kind of walks along beside you. It doesn't have to be tethered to your identity. It doesn't have to be all of you. It's something that's with you and you can talk to it and relate to it and take a break from it as well. And I think that language is really important in the way that we talk about ourselves and our relationships and our life. And just it's a small difference. But I do think that it does impact how we relate to these diseases and how we feel and just kind of how we think about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it like, you know, literally on paper, it seems like a small difference, but I, yeah. I view it as a pretty huge difference myself. And do you, so when you say that the language has changed, do you mean like in, academia like in the kind of teachings of psychology and psychotherapy or personally like your language or both 
Yeah, I think like I've noticed it socially for sure. I think that it is kind of developing into like mainstream discussions about mental health people are saying living with or this with. Yeah. And then in practice, I think that it's shifting as well. I think that people do relate to that language shift and it's almost imperceptible, but I do think it is important. And it's definitely not like a black or white thing. Like it's not wrong to say one or the other, but that's just a shift that I personally yeah, identified with and liked and have used ever since. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm in the same uh, mm-hmm. viewpoint as well. And I, yeah, sometimes, I, I mean, I know that a lot of folks can get so much kind of relief when, if there is like a diagnosis of some sort that they, it can be kind of freeing for a lot of folks who mm-hmm. might be so lost in how they're feeling and secluded and alone. But I also know that like it can really become the cornerstone of a lot of folks' identities if they identify with a mental disorder. Like I know a lot of folks are like putting it on their social media profiles and things like that, right? And I think, you know, in trying not to judge that, but it like sort of, it, it just seems like that then becomes so much real, more real and more static almost in a way, right? Where I think, yeah, it's a, it can be really freeing, but it can also be restrictive at the same time. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone processes these experiences differently and find solace in a diagnosis or frustration in one. I think for me, it was definitely the former. Like it, it's relieving to have an explanation for the way that you feel often. I think that, and it opens up resources, which is great. But I do feel that there is kind of a fine line between, you know, understanding the disorder and using that title to, yeah, just open up tools that you can use to improve your life and enhance your well-being versus identifying with it to the point of, you know, you're kind of down a rabbit hole of feeling like you're stuck with it. And I think it's just a balance of whatever feels right to you but it's important to remember that there is you know life is vast and varied and multifaceted and there is no one singular identifier for a person and it's certainly not um, your mental health forever at least you know yeah yeah I love that I love that approach I think a lot about how people approach uh, getting help or getting resources or I guess even just the concept of like personal work, work on oneself, uh, that Mm -hmm. is kind of where my company lives in that space. And and I find that depression in particular is really challenging because of the nature of depression being so draining and so, yeah, like you're just so unmotivated, right? I remember like even my experience with therapy really didn't, like I had a bunch of like single sessions and maybe a handful of like sessions here and there and until I after I started first session this company that I have is when I like spent two years in therapy and did a lot of stuff and now I'm looking for my next therapist but you know I think people who are depressed like how how would you almost describe what it's like and like if someone's feeling depressed for the first time or like it's getting worse for the first time what might you say as far as like how to 
you know, what can you do to try to get out of it in your experience? Yeah, I mean, it's varies by individual for sure. And depression can take on a lot of forms. I know for me personally, how it's often manifested is more physically than emotionally. Some people can have, you know, persistent negative thoughts and feel really sad and be very teary. And my experience personally has been more of a deep physical exhaustion and lack of motivation and what we kind of call anhedonia, like just feeling very flat affect. And that is not some like that's absolutely not my normal way of showing up in the world. It feels very foreign to me to feel that way. So when I'm feeling depressed, it's like it feels awful, right? And it's very obvious to me that that's the way that's where I'm at. But yeah, I, th- I like I was introduced to this kind of little model called like the red light model when I was I think I was 18 or something. But it was a very just helpful tool. And it's a great activity to do as an individual of, you know, looking at green, yellow, red light. And if you're at your green light, you're doing great. Things are going smoothly. You're feeling good. And it's a good reflection to reflect on what do I feel when I'm in the green zone. What does my life look like? What do my daily activities look like? What am I doing? Yellow zone is, you know, maybe I'm sliding towards being in a depressive episode or sliding towards burnout or sliding towards, you know, something that is going to be more drastic and scary. And I'm recognizing that. And what are the first kind of signs for me personally that show up when I'm heading towards you know, the sign that something isn't going to be very good. And for me, it's like I slowly start to lose interest in activities. I may not want to hang out with friends as much. My appetite changes, things like that. And the whole idea is to just be able to recognize when you're in these stages. So when you are in like the red light zone, they say, which is when for me personally, that's a full depressive episode. The idea is to be able to put in interventions to get out, to get back to green as soon as you can. And I think that it is personal. Like you can look at a biopsychosocial model, like what can you change in your environment biologically that will help you feel better? Can you exercise? Dopamine release from exercise is huge. It's been shown to be just as effective as SSRIs, if not more in some studies. Are you completing tasks that make you feel good physically? Are you showering? Are you eating enough? Are you sticking to, you know, good sleep hygiene? psychological can you go see a therapist can you see your friends can you talk it out can you journal can you reflect on these things and then socially it's so important to just look at the social environment that you have around you one of my favorite Freud quotes is before you diagnose yourself with depression make sure that you're not surrounded by assholes (laughs) which I think is great but just like really leveraging your social circle and the people around you and um, making sure you're safe in your relationships and yeah, just leaning into connection is huge. So that's kind of like, yeah, the model that I use to a first notice where I'm at in my kind of mental health and then b interject at wherever step I am in order to kind of get to a better place, hopefully. Yeah, I love that. I love that because it doesn't seem 
super like scientific or like it seems fairly you know you don't have to be like i don't know journaling every single day or like you know wearing mm -hmm. all these monitors or whatever um you know it's just kind of a bit of reflection can help you and just those three three lights i'm curious if you you know i think this is like i don't know personally i think like the worst part of my depression in order to fully i mean it took me kind of years to get i guess fully out of that zone but i tried so hard to control and like i would like sprint on the treadmill even though like it you know it was like i think it was a lot of like anxiety combined but like i would just try to like fight my way out of it and it was just the interest levels and the you know like not wanting to smile not wanting to be social like kind of that disconnecting feeling which i now i know a lot of you know therapists say it kind of like just builds on itself like these things the more that you hide away the worse it's going to get so but yeah so fighting like it seemed to kind of it just got so exhausting and wasn't fully helping and then yeah at one point i was like well i just changed my mindset to it my relationship to it and maybe it's not fully in my control and maybe i'll actually i think at this point i was feeling like a little bit better but like maybe i I'm not in control of how I'm going to feel. Maybe one day I'll be depressed. And I, I do believe that now, uh, still, that like, you know, this could, things could turn darker for me. And there's something freeing about that. And I, it, it almost sounds depressing to almost say that. But at the same time, it's like there's something freeing about it that relinquishes you from holding the like key to your own mood. I don't know if that is relatable at all. But at the same time, I think there's so many other things environment people food sleep exercise um, that are have been really great for me at least and i guess my question for you is that with this kind of green light yellow light red light model and it sounds like you i think you said you were 18 when that first kind of came on your radar do you notice like less like have you sort of like gotten better i guess at noticing and like trying to prevent or trying to intervene or has that not been the case can it some like has it been just kind of evolving up and down over the years like are you better at catching yourself early and then kind of intervening or can it sometimes just just go the other way the answer is yes i'm definitely better at noticing and being aware of my mental state and sometimes I can catch myself before I slide into that. I definitely have had like a few years of not having a full-on depressive episode. And I think part of that, you know, was learning about those states and how to kind of maximize my well-being with the tools that I have. Part of it was medication was really huge for me. But you're right, like you cannot control your brain and you can't control your life and that's you know, the same for people who live with depression or not like life is very unpredictable it's stressful it's hard there's going to be trauma and crises and grief and if your brain naturally doesn't you know have the same chemical balance as someone who's neurotypical that can make it a lot harder and I do think that there is a lot of power in just surrendering to being a human 
and an animal and giving yourself grace and patience and kindness and, you know, acknowledging that for everyone, but particularly me in this moment with what I'm going through, I cannot snap my fingers and change it. And the very best things that I can do is just, you know, all I can do is my best at this minute, this second, this hour, maybe my best is getting out of bed. Maybe my best is calling my mom, you know, and that's okay. And it does not last forever. It won't. And I think that is the sole source of, you know, hope that sometimes you can grab onto is just acknowledging, hey, I can't change this right now. This feels like crap, but it's not going to feel this way forever. And all I have to do is just put one foot in front of the other at whatever speed that I can in this moment. And I think that sometimes that just has to be enough. And it's hard to get to the mindset where you are extending the same kindness to yourself as you do to others when you're in a state like that. Very difficult to really, truly believe that when you're telling yourself that. Yeah, that's very wise. That's very wise. That's amazing. I'm curious if you'd be willing to chat a little bit more about your experience with starting medication and how you approach that you know there's a lot of different opinions on medication and a lot of different experiences and oftentimes i know it can make people feel worse so i'm curious how your period of starting medication went and how you got to the point of getting some relief um, if that was easy or difficult or somewhere in between yeah so i was in university and I was having my first like real kind of long, like prolonged period of depression ever. And it was very scary. And I was really lucky to have like a great female doctor at the campus clinic who I was seeing throughout the year. And it did, she had been suggesting medication for a long time for me. And I was very resistant to it. I didn't like the idea of taking medication. I was embarrassed. I was frustrated. That might be something that I would have to do. And I really didn't want to even think about it. It kind of got to a point for me where I felt like I had been trying everything and I it just what didn't feel like it was working. And I just needed to try something because it was absolutely unsustainable the way that I was feeling. So my experience with medication has personally been good. I take an SSRI. I've been on SSRIs for like four years now. And I've, I'm on a lower dose than I was when I started. I don't know if I'll be on them forever. It would be nice to not be. But if they continue to, you know, make me feel better, then I'm not going to go off them. I think medication, you know, like if you had a heart disease and you were in immense pain and there was a medication that could help you with that, why would you not take it, you know? And it's the same with medications that help stabilize your brain chemistry into a way that's a little bit more normal and allows you to move through life the way that you should be. But that being said, you know, SSRIs are, I think they're, they're only effective for like 40% of people, like less than half. So, you know, it doesn't always work. And that's really frustrating. And I do think that there is kind of an endemic problem in our medical system where you know, doctors are not trained or they don't have the bandwidth to go over kind of a holistic strategy for mental health with people. And 
that is often the first line of defense. And I personally don't feel that it should be, you know, as I was saying, like exercise, multiple studies have shown that exercise can be just as effective as medication for people with depression. Yeah. And that was never suggested to me by a doctor once, you know, it's, it's a important conversation. Medication doesn't work for everyone, but it is, it's a tool in the arsenal that is effective for some people. So I wouldn't completely disregard it either. Yeah. No, I just, I noticed that your approach to this is, I mean, it just comes with so much kind of, I imagine kind of like self-advocacy or just education. And I mean, I see a lot of that with people in our generation, but like when speaking with parents or my parents, for example, you know, I think there's, I think in our generation, there's a lot less just one directional, like just take the doctor's orders kind of thing. And maybe that's because the system looks different these days than it did generate like a generation ago. But just what I kind of hearing you say is that it's so important to sort of bring your own knowledge and research and awareness in like with exercise. Like I, I see that in the UK, they've been prescribing exercise, you know, for a long time. I I love that. And, And, you know, that's still not happening here. And, you know, I think people here, part of my job has been trying to dis unconfuse people around the differences around like what's a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a psychotherapist mm-hmm. or a counselor or a social worker or a doctor, you know, and like who yeah. can prescribe and who can't. And, and then like looking at those professions and like, are some of them covered? Are some of them not? You know, and it's just the education, I guess, is not, as far as I know, provided in like the regular education system to know that like in elementary school or in high school I think right so mm-hmm. I think it's easy for a lot of people just to call their family doctor or many people don't have family doctors go to a clinic explain your symptoms whether that's depression or anxiety or something else and then the system really can only just write a prescription right and then a lot of those don't work or a lot of them might have a negative side effects. So yeah, I think just having these conversations and just like giving people the almost like push to, to be their own advocate if they're able to, right. And do their own research, which I know is a lot kind of difficult sometimes too, because, you know, Googling a lot of therapists will say, don't Google your symptoms yeah. or doctors. Right. So yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's amazing, but so back to your kind of trust in becoming a therapist. Was there any particular like experiences or therapists that you worked with that inspired you to, to go on this path? Or is it, how did you end up doing your master's? Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know if there was like a specific moment or person where the light went on and I thought, aha, I want to do this. I think that just as a person, I think... I've always known that I wanted to be in a helping field. That was very clear to me. Just like personally, I found that that was something that I really resonated with and I found a lot of fulfillment from. I volunteered kind of in like mental health helping capacities through high school and university and best buddies and mental health teams and just really focused on connecting with people and I think empathy has been a very core value of mine. And I just, it was just something that just kind of clicked and felt good. And yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's always been something that I've been interested in. And I think that there are 
obviously other fields and professions that, you know, do similar things and they could have been or would be equally, you know, rewarding. But I'm really excited to, I love what I'm learning. I'm excited to graduate and start working. And yeah, it's definitely a cool field. There's a lot you can do with it. Yeah, I've, I often intermittently consider going back to school for counseling or some PhD, but I'm, you know, constantly trying to read or listen to podcasts and learn. So I also wanted to ask you about your, again, and your kind of writing, I guess, about your, your mental health, your depression. I think you referenced that you like feel very deeply um, and like sometimes you wish you didn't. I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on that and how you kind of, I guess, feeling deeply kind of makes sense when you, when a lot of other people maybe not feel as deeply or apparently not feel as deeply. So how did you kind of, I guess, come to that kind of conclusion or that you might like feel deeply relative to others? Yeah. I mean, I think like I can remember being a kid and being told by my parents that I was like a deep feeler (laughs) you know I think I was just like very emotive and I have very a very hard time like hiding the way that I'm feeling I've always been somebody who cries at something beautiful just like quick to feel big emotions and resonate with things and find things important and you know feel just like a lot of empathy or pain on behalf of other people or situations and that can be really tough. I remember even in like, I think I was a teenager in one of my first relationships and my first boyfriend was like, you feel too much, <laughs> you know? It's just, it's difficult when people don't understand that that's kind of like you're, you just respond to the world. You're a very responsive person. And I do think that, you know, we're not all so different, but I we have different ways of kind of manifesting those emotions and processing them and deciding how much they mean to us, whether subconsciously or consciously. But yeah, I just, I think that it's a blessing to be able to feel things so deeply overall because it creates meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm a huge, I guess, follower or fan of Dr. Gabor Mate. I know he's very popular Mm -hmm. these days, but I know he's also from Vancouver or at least yeah. immigrated there. And and I really like his uh, viewpoint of looking at like predisposition for mental health challenges. I won't say mental illness here, but being predicated on like a sensitivity like index almost. So like mm-hmm. how like people vary in their sensitivity, but you know, that sort of has a, a correlation with, you know, other mental health challenges. Yeah. And I can definitely relate to that myself as well. And so my family members as well. And yeah, I'm just curious how you, I imagine you, you're in line with that way of thinking too. Yeah, for sure. I remember taking like a psychology of well-being course when I was in my last year of university. And there's this theory called the ORCID theory by David Dobbs. He's actually a geneticist, but he, it's this idea that you know the genes that predispose people to be sensitive because the idea is orchids are sensitive plants right they require care and nurturing 
And there's this idea that kids with predisposition to be sensitive and, you know, maybe have a bit of anxiety or depression or, you know, a predisposition for more troubling human behaviors in the right environment and with the right support, you know, those predispositions can also end up being some of the best and most beautiful attributes of those people too. You know, a child who's predisposed to be very anxious or maybe depressed in a nurturing environment in which they feel safe and, you know, aligned with their identity and confident can grow up to be a feeler and a deeply creative person and have a lot of empathy and use those emotions in a really positive way. So, yeah, I, I love that theory and I love how science-based it is. And I think it's just like a good way of looking at, you know, just because you interact with the world in, a, in maybe a deeply passionate way that might be different from others doesn't mean that's a bad thing. Like it, it can be a strength. Yeah, I love how you seem to just kind of lean into that. And I know like when your boyfriend at the time kind of said like, don't, you know, don't feel so much or don't, mm -hmm. you know, I imagine a lot of other people who feel deeply or more sensitive or, uh, you know, have a similar experience. And I, I know I used to be like that when I was younger too. And uh, you almost, if you're told to not feel deeply, then you'll, you're going to feel like you're not allowed to feel right. And that presents other challenges. Did you, did it take some time for you to kind of lean into the fact that you're someone who feels deeply? Like how, if, it, like if someone is, feels like they're unrelatable to their circle around them because they're a sensitive person, like what would you say to them as far as yeah. Yeah, like getting out of that kind of trap or? I mean, I think I definitely am not out of the trap <laughs> by any means. Yeah. I think that it's just, it's about giving, it's, I just, I keep saying giving yourself grace, but I just think it's so important to just be nice to yourself. And when people are told, you know, as you were mentioning, like the way that you are feeling isn't correct, it only enhances the shame that people experience. And shame is so toxic. And, you know, it, it just makes psychologically and physically, it's just a really horrible thing for people to carry. And I just think it's so deeply important to learn to release the shame and just practice radical acceptance of who we are and who others are and you know move away from the black and white thinking that one way of perceiving the world and emoting is the right way because it's just not the case and it's complicated it makes the world infinitely more complicated and being a human much more difficult but it's true yeah yeah that's what i well well put i've had a lot of therapists that i've interviewed and just through observation like kind of a lot of what therapy is or I think almost the core purpose of therapy is learning how to be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. I think so, some people, well, most people have a really difficult time with that and it needs to be something that you learn and there's this voice that you can't get rid of and might not even be your voice. It might be someone else's voice. So yeah, and I think it's so beautifully put. So where are you at with your schooling and uh, what's kind of the next year look like for you? Yeah, so I still have a couple courses left. And then the bulk of the eight month, final eight months of my degree are practicum. So to register with the RCC in designation in BC, you have to have a certain number of supervised practicum hours from 
a registered psychologist or counselor. Um, so yeah, it's going to be eight months of that, just gaining hands-on experience, which I'm really looking forward to. I think that will be great. But yeah, right. I'm in course load work. I'm in like a crisis and trauma course and an ethics course. Those fun ones. Nice. That sounds yeah. very exhilarating, but also dreadful. School is not my favorite thing. So I know it's been a bit of a, a bit of a shock to like go back to school after I'm trying to think a four year break, three year break. Suddenly you have to submit essays and deadlines on Sunday nights and things like that. Oh, for sure. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I know like even in the business world, like a lot of like people teams, HR teams really value like that degree as well, like masters in counseling and see more like former counselors become like head of people or something. So yeah, it's really like there's so much to do there. So yeah, props to you for going through that. That's amazing. And thank you. Yeah. Any anything else on your plate or that you want to share uh, happening in the next, you know, six to twelve months for you? Yeah, not really any like big plans coming up. I've definitely kind of focused the next number of months really deeply on finishing my degree. It's been pretty full on for me but yeah I think for me the focus is just going to be on reaching those goals and you know also finding time to travel and keep up with my freelance work which I find really valuable and pays the bills and you know it's, it's an important part of my life too so it's just kind of managing that as things shift and grow love that well thank you so much for joining me today and Finally, we'll, where can people find you online? Yeah, I would say probably my most active location right now is my Instagram page, which is Annie McIntosh, Annie with two E's. So I think that's probably, yeah, where I'm on the most. I'm also on TikTok. I have a website, but I'm not very active on it right now. But yeah, it can always be reached on my Instagram. My email is up on that page well. Amazing. So yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. I'm sure not too long in the future, you'll you'll be on a, some counseling website, whether it's your own or a group <laughs> practice. So I'm sure folks can find you. That's then. the goal. Awesome. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Annie. And I hope you have a great rest of your day and a weekend ahead. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Actualize podcast. You can find the show notes for this episode, as well as all other episodes at firstsession.com slash podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.